catapulted into, um, into a large uh, public school for high school. So from a class of seven to a class of a thousand, uh, it, was a, it was a big leap, and I was dazed and confused, just trying to find my locker and trying to find my, my place in the world. And uh, if I could summarize those years, it was like high school was an inside joke that I didn't quite get. And uh, I've talked to others over the years who've, uh, who felt kind of the same, uh, same way, had the same experience. But thankfully, uh, most of us made it through there. But, but sometimes uh, life sort of feels like that. We're, we're sort of out on, on the fringe somewhere. And uh, there's, there's a lot of ways. Oh, yeah, here's my, my high school, the Marauders. Yeah, high schools tend to have these great uh, heroes. A marauder is someone who pillages villages, apparently. So <laughs> we, we were wanted to be that. Um, but sometimes, sometimes life we could feel on the fringe, maybe kind of forgotten. Um, maybe, uh, maybe our kids have moved away from us. We just, we just sent a kid off to school. Um, maybe just living in this town of Cambria. You know, we're not the center of anything. We're not the, the San Jose Tech Center. We're not... Uh, the, the Hollywood, you know, uh, movie center or, or Sacramento, the, the capital, we're, we're just kind of uh, quiet out here, hidden on the fringe of things. And I know most of you uh, came here on purpose for that reason. But I think sometimes uh, we think of God being sovereign in the big picture of things. Like we know theologically that he's coming back. He, he's got control. He's He's even control of, of the rise and fall of nations. And one day he will return and make things right. But here out in our little quiet hole, <laughs> sometimes we wonder, what about here and now? What about me? What about those days when I feel uh, on the fringe, out of the loop, a little confused, maybe in obscurity, maybe with hidden hurts, maybe overlooked? Well, I'm really encouraged by today's passage because it drives home this point that God is compassionately at work on the fringe. He loves to do amazing things in obscure places. God is taking notice of you, and he's willing and able to do an incredible work in you no matter how isolated or obscure or marginalized or forgotten you sometimes may feel. That is a great encouragement uh, to me. We're continuing our study of the book of Kings. And uh, if you could summarize the book of Kings in one word, it would be the book of Kings is about kings. And uh, I think it's an apropos uh, title uh, to the books. Um, And a major message throughout throughout, uh, both 1 and 2 Kings is that God is sovereign over nations and rulers. God is sovereign over, over kings. He's sovereign over, over states. This is repeatedly throughout First and Second Kings. We see leaders rise and leaders fall and, uh, and great armies battle. And God, all the time, is sovereign and has his hand in it. Um, just, just last week, we saw uh, Ahaziah. God says to him, because you rejected my word, You'll die from your injuries. And what happens in the very next word, we, the very next verse is he died according to the word of the Lord. So in other words, you know, mighty king of nation, God says, okay, your time's over, and his time is over. 
And then in chapters 3 and 4, uh, we see these, in chapter 3, we see this great battle of three uh, armies together battling against another army. The battle of the four armies. Israel, Judah, and Edom versus Moab. And the allied forces are dying in the wilderness for lack of water. And uh, in chapter 3, verse 18, we get this message. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. In other words, uh, God will take care of this whole battle. He'll provide the water you need for your horses and for your soldiers. And on top of that, it's just no big deal for God to give the Moabites into your hand. So we see these great themes of God sovereign over kings. He's sovereign over nations. And we look at our, our world today and we, we scratch our heads at some of the things that are going on on a big scale and politically in the and some nations that just seem kind of scary right now, and some things that nations that seem fragile, and things going on in our own country. And, uh, and we know, as we read through Kings, that God is sovereign over those great um, movements in the world. But what about the little guys? <laughs> what about uh, you and me in our little world? Well, in this passage, we see this, this shift take place. We're going to be in chapters uh, 4 and a little bit of chapter 6 today. Um, we've seen a lot of, of miracles of uh, both Elijah and Elisha, and we'll continue to see miracles of Elisha, but they take on a different, um, a different tone, so to speak. And I'm going to call these uh, arena miracles and closet miracles. So we have been seeing arena miracles, which are miracles to publicly display God's superior power. A classic example of this is Elijah on Mount Carmel. You know, gather everyone, gather everyone in opposition, have the the king there, make this big ordeal, you know, and invite uh, all the power parties, and then God shows up and fire from heaven and uh, it's undeniable that God is doing something there. That's an, that's an arena miracle. It, the whole nation sees. Or, or uh, when God dramatically changes the course of a, whole, uh, uh, of a whole central battle, arena miracles. In today's chapters, we see closet miracles, miracles that privately display God's gracious compassion. Behind closed doors, in obscurity with unnamed characters that just have names like the widow or the woman from Shunem or that one guy. And uh, God is doing miracles in obscure places. So I'm pretty sure the books were originally um, written for the, the exiles in Babylon. So I imagine them reading through all these accounts of God working a sovereign over nations and rulers, and these exiles probably could piece it together and say, yes, I believe that God can even bring down Babylon in that he can one day deliver us. Uh, because I've seen all through the book of Kings what he's done. He's done this many, many times. God's in control. But I may never live to see that. What about my life here and now in my obscure little corner, oppressed, marginalized, powerless, out on the fringe, what do I do? And so the book of Kings speaks very clearly to us and the exiles and people of all time who feel that same way. I love the song this morning, God of Angel Armies, the God who is 
who is powerful over, over all these great, you know, host, angelic host of armies, he's, he's on our side if we're his child. Great, big, big, huge God is also thinking about you. God is compassionately at work way out on the fringe. So this morning we're going to look at six miracles, uh, all in obscurity, not on the battlefield, not in the palace, not in the arena on the mountain, but uh, mostly behind closed doors. And each miracle reveals uh, these two things. One is that God cares about your life on the fringe. However forgotten you may feel, however obscure, if life's a joke that you didn't quite get, life's a party you weren't invited to, uh, God cares about your life on the fringe. And the second thing these miracles reveal to us is that God could work just wondrous things on the fringe. So we're going to start in chapter 4 of 2 Kings. If you're following along in one of the, the Pew Bibles, it's on page 309, I believe. And we start with miracle number one. And miracle number one is an unpayable debt is paid. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha and said, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. We're introduced again to the sons of the prophets. We'll see those several times in these chapters. This group of, um, this group of followers, disciples of, of the true God, of Yahweh. As kings and culture are tanking, <laughs> abandoning God, being driven into the ground, we see this interesting phenomenon of the sons of prophets growing. Uh, we see similar things in the world today. There are some nations to some extent ours, where God is, is being squished out of the public square, is uh, it no longer uh, the law of God is the law of the land. And, uh, and yet we see in these little hidden corners of the world God's people thriving. And, and this happens in this case with the sons of the prophets. But anyway, from the very first verse, we're introduced to our first kind of anonymous character, and it's the, the widow of one of the sons of prophets. So already, uh, a family living in obscurity, living kind of underground, so to speak, probably living in poverty, and then her husband passes away. And so you could just see the, the desperation here. She has an unpayable debt, and her children are going to be sold into slavery to pay that debt. So a, an absolute desperate uh, situation for this woman. And here's Elisha's response in verse 2. Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me what have you in the house. And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar. It's like literally a, like a small flask like for anointing oil. A small flask of oil. Then he said, well, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons, and pour into all these vessels, and when one is full, uh, set it aside. And so she went and did this, what the prophet said. He's like, she brought forth her little vial, her little anointing vial. This is all I have left. This is our possession. This represents our, our wealth here, you know, a little bit of oil. And uh, he says, well, go borrow, you know, whatever kind of containers you can find from all your neighbors and uh, get a lot of them. 
And so they go behind closed doors, just her and her sons, and uh, with a little vial, she starts filling up these jars. And as soon as she fills one, her son's bringing her another one, bring her another one, and she's like, do you have any more? And one of the kids like, no, that's all we have. And all of a sudden, the, it runs out, the oil. So they have all these jars of oil, so much. And in verse 7, it says she came and she told the man of God, you know, Elisha, and he says, go and sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. It's that much oil that, that you know, I picture this house just full of all these containers. They opened up you know, an olive oil store, and uh, paid off the debts, and they were able to live on this. And uh, God just really showed up (laughs) on the edge of things, out on the fringe. And again, we see he cared about this woman in her distress. She was not some central figure in the political uh, storyline happening. She was a widow of an obscure guy. And uh, God worked wonders on the fringe. I, I think this is deeply encouraging for people like us. But uh, along the way, there's lessons for you and for me of what we should do in response to this fact. If, if God's compassionately at work on the fringe, then, then one thing we learn from this, uh, this widow is that we turn to him for help. Uh, she could have uh, gone a lot of places in her desperation, but what she did was go immediately to the man of God, you know, the spokesperson of God, and, you know, what should I do? Have, have mercy on me. She turned to the Lord for help. And when we are in, in distress and feel forgotten and feel uh, obscure and forsaken, whatever it might be, misunderstood, alone, just turn, turn to God because he is caring for you out on the fringe. Another kind of interesting thing, I think we learn from the widow is that when we believe that God's at work on the fringe, we can offer what we have. When uh, Elisha asked, well, what do you have? You know, all she had is this little oil. She could have hid that. She's like, I don't have anything, you know, because I don't want to give up this one little thing I have. But she said, here it is. I, I have this flask of oil. And God used that. I think sometimes we look at the problems in the world, <laughs> or the problems in our lives, you know, like, I can't, I don't have anything that can fix that. I can't do anything. I don't have anything. But the truth is, uh, you do have something, <laughs> and you can do something. We could pray. We could meet a small need, even if we can't, you know, fix all the world's problems. And I think God is inviting us to, to offer what we do have. Maybe you look out to your, your, your family or your, your neighborhood and you say, they'll, they'll never change. It's just hopeless. I'm, I'm here on the, the forgotten zone and there's nothing I could do. Well, you could do some little acts of kindness. You could uh, bring your family and neighbors to the Lord in prayer. You can do something. You could bring something. I, I think of this crisis in, in Bangladesh where Nancy Delgana is serving and this huge refugee crisis and all this coming from, from Burma and just horrific and unimaginable things going on. It's like, well, I can't fix that, but we could do something. And we could certainly pray. Uh, I think Jesus speaks to this sentiment in, in Luke. He says, you saw the poor widow put in two small copper coins and said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. So she didn't have much, but she brought what 
she did have, and the Lord celebrated her for that. He didn't say, is that all? <laughs> he, he, he cheered her on, and her, uh, her story is written in, you know, it's immortal. It's in, it's in Scripture. So when you know for sure that God is compassionately at work, even out here in, in the fringe lands on the edge, then you can confidently turn to him and offer up what you do have because you know he's going to do something with it. So first miracle. Let's look at the next miracle. Is a childless woman uh, gives birth. And this starts in, in verse 8. It says this, One day Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. So when I read this, I thought, this is not a new problem that uh, wives get this idea for a renovation and, uh, and sign their husbands up for it. It's like, hey, I got this great idea. Let's build a spare room. But... Uh, but, but seriously, this, this woman is just seeing uh, a need and meeting it. Um, Elisha would pass through that area. She sees, you know, hungry prophet. You know, let's, let's have him over for dinner. In fact, let's make a place for, for Elisha and Gehazi, his, his servant, to, to stay. And so they built a room on the roof, a guest room for, uh, for these two characters. In contrast to the first miracle, um, you know, we had a widow who was poor. Now we have uh, a married woman who is wealthy, and uh, but she still, we'll see, is on the fringe. Elisha, after this great act of kindness, Elisha asked her, "You know, what can we do for you in return? You know, thank you so much for the for the spare room and the meals, all the hospitality." And she says, kind of a funny phrase. She says, "I dwell among my own people," which, which I think my best guess is that just means no, I'm I'm doing fine. I don't I don't need anything. I'm I'm content here. Uh, I'm okay. She just did it out of service to the Lord. So Elisha and Gehazi, his servant, they kind of contemplated, and Elisha asked his servant, "You know what? What does she need that we don't we're missing here?" And uh, he points out that well, she has no no child, and her husband's her husband's old. They're not able to to have children. And uh, in this culture, that would be such a, such a stigma and such a, um, even beyond what it is for, for any heartbroken couple that's not able to, to conceive children, um, it's add on top of that this huge uh, cultural stigma. And so, though she had plenty of money, she had a husband, she had a house, and now she had a house with a spare room, um, she was likely felt on the fringe, an, an outsider not quite fitting in. Some of you might be just doing just fine, <laughs> but you have a hidden, a hidden hurt. There's some way where you feel on the fringe, and that's why I'm so thankful that God is compassionately working out there on the fringe. And so here's what uh, Elisha said in uh, verse 16. He says to the woman, uh, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. <laughs> and she said, no, my Lord, man of God, don't lie to your servant. You know, she didn't want to be let down. But the woman did conceive, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, just as Elisha had said to her. 
And so again and again, the Lord cared for this woman out there in her obscurity, and he, and he worked a marvelous miracle for her. Not a, not a power player, not in the palace, not in the grand storyline, but just he did this for her. He's compassionately working there. And so I think something we learned from, from this woman is when we're so certain, certain that God is compassionately at work on the fringe, then we could selflessly serve him. She, she did this for the prophet in the name of the Lord and, and fed him and uh, provided housing for, her, for he and his servant. And uh, she did this all asking nothing in return. Like, no, I'm fine. I'm content. I, I have what I need. Uh, I'm good. And she just did it out of the love for the Lord. Um, at least one family in our church has a guest room that they use largely just for that purpose. You know, this, this still happens now. <laughs> a missionary comes and they, they, they have a place to stay. Just seeing a need and doing something about it. I also think of, it, it's been almost overwhelming in the last few months, um, the number of uh, people in our church family or kind of extended church family, so to speak, who've gone through some really uh, difficult and, and sometimes just uh, traumatic things in their in their health or in their families. And I've seen church people just rally around them and uh, bring in meals, send in emails, praying, transportation, uh, visiting, and all these things. And it's just seeing a need, not asking something in return, and just going and serving. So when we're certain that uh, God's at work out here, <laughs> and he sees, he knows, uh, that makes it so much easier for us just to jump in and serve him. Okay, third miracle. A deceased child is brought to life. So if you've read or looked at the, the chapter headings or whatever, we see that this child was the child of this woman. The woman's most treasured gift from God was snatched away. Uh, verse 18 uh, to 20. When the child had grown... Uh, not very big, but he you know, started to grow up. He went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he says to his father, Oh, my head, my head. And father said to his servant, Oh, carry him home to his mother. Yeah, this also still happens. And when, he had, and when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. This, this miracle baby, this gift from the Lord, um, died in his, his mother's arms. I can't imagine the roller coaster she was on. You know, she's, she's on the having no reason to really hope. She's, um, she's barren, and that's just, you know, there's nothing she can do about that. And then, and then she's afraid to hope when Elisha makes the announcement. And then, and then her hopes are realized. She bore the son. And then her greatest fear was realized when the child died. She's just all over. She's just devastating. But instead of being angry at God, or paralyzed by grief, you know, I have nowhere to turn. Instead of abandoning God, well, I'll turn to anybody now except God because he let this happen. Instead of any of those things, she sought out God just as uh, the first woman did. She went to the prophet of God It said, help me, Lord. <laughs> in, my, in my grief, in my tragedy, she, she turned to the Lord. So she arrives at the prophet's house and and Gehazi meets, uh, meets her, 
and Elisha sends Gehazi back ahead of, ahead of him with, with his staff, and uh, he tries out the staff, it doesn't do anything, um, and Elisha shows up behind, and uh, in verse 32, when Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on the bed, and so he went in, and again he shut the door behind the two of them, and he prayed to the Lord. This is, uh, again, behind closed doors. The first, with all the jars of oil, that was behind closed doors. Um, I, I'm just having, having to assume that the second miracle, the conception of the child, was behind closed doors. Um, I'm hoping. And then this third miracle, uh, it says again, they closed the doors behind closed doors. God is working in, in, in this quiet obscurity, closet miracles, so to speak, to privately display God's gracious compassion. Verse 35, uh, I'm not sure the significance of this, but it says, the child sneezed seven times and then opens his eyes. He's, he's revived to life. You know, after seven sneezes, um, and uh, he comes back to life, and Elisha, you know, gives the son back to mom. Wow, that roller coaster just, you know, kind of keeps, keeps going. And again, again, it's, it's uh, emphatic that God cares about your life on the fringe, and God can work wonders out on the fringe. Miracle 4. Actually, Miracle 4, 5, and 6, uh, they all have to do with the sons of prophets, uh, as, the, as the first one did too. These followers of Yahweh, they're being trained in the true worship of God according to the covenant, but, they, but they're kind of outcasts of, of society. Um, there's no uh, government-sanctioned uh, worship of Yahweh. It's quite the opposite. And for some reason, I don't know if anybody in this room except me and maybe my family who I've tortured with it has seen the old film from the 70s, uh, Brother, Son, Sister, Moon. Uh, anybody see that little gym? Yeah. So somebody, I think of the Sons of Prophets, uh, I think of, of these guys. They're just kind of this ragtag group of guys on the outskirts of town. They're living off the land and, and donations, and they're trying to return to this pure worship of God. And uh, except one difference is the sons of the prophets, they, they weren't uh, celibate monks, as we already saw, because one had a, a widow, so he was married uh, in the first miracle. So the king was supposed to be promoting this true worship, but, uh, but he did the opposite. And again, as the king and country are tanking spiritually, uh, the sons of prophets are increasing. So with no temple, no government support of worshiping God, uh, these guys held forth uh, true worship in these little communities. They, they just kept growing when faith was declining in the culture. To, to the exiles of Babylon, this would have been really good news. Like, oh, we could, we could thrive here, even under the, the powerful thumb of, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar. It's like we can, we can thrive in our relationship with God. And I hope that's encouragement to, to all of us here. Like, whatever happens politically, whatever happens culturally, um, we could thrive in our relationship with God. So, here, the fourth miracle is a poison soup is edible, or it might say eatable on your notes, which probably means the same thing. Um, it, verse 38 says, And Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, uh, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. 
the famine hits hardest <laughs> on the fringe. <laughs> well, one of the guys, he just went to gather some veggies. They don't have very much to put in this soup. It kind of reminds me of the old stone soup uh, kind of parable. But uh, he goes and he finds some unknown thing, which, you know, Amish survival guide says, don't do this. Um, he gathered these, whatever they were, and he brought them, and they cut them up and put them in the stew. And they're eating this soup or stew together, and they immediately realize, this is poisonous. This is going to kill us. And they said to the man of God, say, oh, man of God, there's death in the pot. And they couldn't eat it. They, you know, there's already a famine, and now you've ruined the stew. We're going to get sick. We're going to die. Elisha, he just threw some flour in it. Um, it's not that the flour fixed it. It's, it's a miracle. God fixed the stew. And again and again, we see, yeah, even these obscure guys living out here, God cares about them on the fringe, and he worked a miracle on the fringe. And so that leads us to the fifth miracle. A meager gift is more than enough. Uh, starting at verse 42. So this man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. So with, with no temple in, in Israel, because that was... Uh, in Judah, and uh, no government-approved worship, they got really creative, and the true followers of God, they're like, well, we know that the Lord has asked us to bring these tithes, so where do we bring them? And so they brought them to these, uh, these schools or these sons of the prophets and to, and to uh, the man of God. And so this, this guy brought his, brought his gift, but it was not near enough to feed the people. And I think there's a good lesson in this is if God's at work out on the fringe, then uh, creatively serve him. If, uh, if you are the center culturally, um, let me say it this way. If, if God is the cultural center of your world, then worship is kind of a, a no-brainer. And that's what it was under Solomon. The, the middle of town on the highest hill is this enormous, shiny temple. And everyone's required to go there. Uh, they have uh, all this ritual that's designed just for you to connect with God. The national holidays are exactly the holidays that um, are set aside to honor God. And so all these elements of just life and, and culture and worship, it's all tied together and it's kind of a no-brainer. As, as it's been at times in our uh, nation's history. It's like, well, you know, of course we, we go to church, and of course we, we do this. But uh, during this time, it's certainly not the case. There's no temple. There's no government-sanctioned worship. Um, the holidays are not the holidays to, to honor God. And so they get really uh, creative. He brings his gifts to the sons of prophets instead of to the temple. And there's tons of examples of this, and one that crossed my mind is, um, I heard years ago about um, missionaries going to a tribe that was, uh, that was deeply uh, uh, engaged in polygamy. And, uh, and they brought the gospel to, the, to this tribe, and they started to understand uh, God's word and God's design for, you know, monogamy. And, and but, but trying to weigh, okay, monogamy and God hates divorce and trying to reconcile these, what do I do with all my extra wives? And so um, the missionaries out on the fringe... <laughs> You know, they have to get creative. 
You can't just say, well, no, uh, don't marry all those wives. Well, I already did marry all these wives. It's so get uh, creative on the fringe. Uh, recently, I was talking to a woman who's going through some real hard health issues, and it's uh, just hard for her to do anything. And she made a comment, you know, it's like, I don't have anything to offer. And I just said, well, you, you could pray, <laughs> you know, from, from your bed. You could lift up uh, God's church. And uh, believe me, God uses the prayers of the saints. Um, you might not be able to actually make it to church, but there's things that you could do. Maybe at your job or maybe at your school, religious expression is restricted. Well, just stop whining and get creative <laughs> out there on your fringe. Okay, so this guy brought this gift, and Elisha said, verse 42, well, give it to the men so they could eat it. But it wasn't nearly enough. It would have been a joke, you know. Hey, this sack lunch, there's a hundred hungry guys. I haven't eaten in a while, so have at it. Um, Elisha said, no, give it to him." Verse 43, the servant says, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give it to them that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and they'll have some left. Does this sound familiar? So he said it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Again, God is out there working on the fringe. He's compassionate, he's caring, and he's doing something out on the fringe. Okay, one more miracle. We're going to skip chapter 5 because I'm saving that little treat for next week. Um, but uh, ch- the sixth miracle is beginning of chapter 6. We're just going to look at the first seven verses. And this is about an axe head that was lost and now is found. Verse 1, again, the sons of the prophets, they said to Elisha, See the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us? Isn't that a great problem? Their little, their little ragtag group is growing. We're, we're outgrew this place. So, verse 2, let's go down to the Jordan and each of us there get a, a log <laughs> and make a place for us to dwell there. I just wonder what kind of dwelling you make out of a log. But, um, so this is not an elaborate dwelling. But anyway, uh, they, they did that and he went with them. Uh, Verse 3, one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants. And he said, I'll go. He went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they were cutting down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water. And he cried out, alas, my master, it was borrowed. These guys in total poverty had to to beg a a tool to use um, in order that they could cut down a log to build a a shelter to expand their place. And uh, he's just... He's devastated. Um, maybe this meant debtor's prison. Like, he can't pay it back. You know, it's not, I, I know an axe head now is not a big deal, but that would have been, you know, kind of an important tool. Verse 6 and 7, the man of God said, well, where did it fall? And he showed him the place, and he cut off a stick, and he threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, pick it up. So he reached out his hand, and he took it. Now, this isn't some trick, you know, to, to make things flow. You cut up sticks or something. This is just God doing a miracle for the sake of these guys out there serving him on the fringe. He's showing them compassion, and he's working wonders. Kings and culture had abandoned God, but out on the fringe, they just kept gathering together. They kept learning together. They just kept serving, and they just kept growing. They just kept carrying on 
out on the edge. And it's really a great lesson for all of us is if God's at work out on the fringe, then just keep serving him. Don't, don't give up hope. Don't lose heart. As culture strays further and further, his true followers will be farther and further on the fringe. And we need to just keep serving, keep gathering, keep learning, keep loving, keep serving. There's a lot of ways you might feel on the edge. Maybe it's the silent shame like this barren woman or in debt and at the mercy of others like, like the other women. Woman. A disability, loneliness, loss of friends or family, or just feeling out of place in this world. Well, God is right there with you. He's caring for you. He's eager to do a work in your life. And if I just had to sum up all this, God, you are never alone. <laughs> no matter how remote you feel some days or how misunderstood or out of step, you are never alone. Yeah, I'd love to just end reading these verses from Psalm 139. The psalmist says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're, you're right there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take on the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea in such remote places, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I'm just so thankful that God is out there on the edge, out there on the fringe, loving us and with us. And uh, let's just give him thanks right now. Uh, Lord God, we, we love you, and I'm really...